Well, this morning we are beginning a brand new series titled Heads of Lettuce. It's been a lot of uh, confusion as to what this series is about, so I'm excited to get into it and unpack it for you guys. We're going to be looking at a portion of the New Testament book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you even now to open them up to the book of Hebrews. It's very, very close to the end of your Bible. So if you flip towards the last couple pages of your Bible, if you have it with you this morning, you'll find the book of Hebrews. There's this phrase that is mentioned in chapter 10. It's a very redundant phrase, and the phrase is, let us. Let us. Because of the cross, and of course the resurrection is always associated with the cross of Jesus Christ, because of what was accomplished on the cross of Christ, let us be motivated. Let us be a particular type of people. Let us live this kind of life. Let us have a mentality of let us. And so, let us heads, right? Mentality of let us. Before I get into this topic today, I wanted to draw your attention, however, to this book. How many of you guys have seen this book? Anybody? Anybody have a copy of this book? If you don't have a copy of it, a lot of you probably do. You can pick one up in the foyer or also in the back hallway. I have a friend who was a missionary in Haiti. And he, uh, he used to walk around when he was a missionary in Haiti with a converted witch doctor. The national religion of, of Haiti, by the way, is voodoo. And so he would walk, away with this witch, walk around with this witch doctor who had been converted from voodooism to Christianity. And they would walk around from village to village, and they would interact with witch doctors and people within these villages, and they would tell them about the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and my friend, he, he told me about these incredible signs of superhuman strength that he saw in these people who were worshiping. Um, I don't know enough about voodooism. Maybe they don't worship anything. Whatever they were doing, practicing voodooism. He saw superhuman strength come upon people. He saw these powerful manifestations of the demonic. People were cursing each other, literally poking little dolls, and people were falling ill because of it. So it's, it's real stuff, he would tell me. And, and he turned to his friend, the witch doctor, and he said, why don't we see this type of stuff in America? And the witch doctor, the converted witch doctor, uh, uh, turned to him and he said, we do, you do. It's called materialism. And it kind of struck me, and it stuck with me for a very long time. He was blown away with this, but materialism, right? It's the idolatry of stuff. It's this capitalistic culture that tells us that we need more, and we need more, and we need more. And if we don't have the latest, greatest thing, then we're not living up to our social responsibility and the social standard that we should be living. And so last Easter, I set out to write the gospel in a way that combated this notion in particular. And I love how the gospel is that versatile. You can really, you can craft the gospel in a whole variety of ways to, to reach various populations of people and speak to different mentalities. I did this with hopes that it would communicate a compelling argument for the gospel and that we would have this opportunity then to get it into the hands of our neighbors and our coworkers and our families who might be struggling with this. And so this is the product of that work. I asked my brother, who is an artist, if he would illustrate this book. And he did, and so you might open this up and you'd find all these beautiful illustrations that he did. Watercolors, right? So it's a compelling book. It's, it's something that's pretty to look at. It's something you could put on your coffee table at home. It's something you could leave in the dentist's office. So uh, you could leave it any number of places, and hopefully this could get into the hands of people. They would see that it's compelling. They would begin to read it, and they would get the gospel in their hands in a way that maybe they never expected it, right? And so my encouragement to you is take one of these or take a few of these and leave them out Give them to people you may know. Get the gospel in the hands of people who need it. There's one image in particular that I wanted to draw your attention to in this book. Anybody want to take a stab at what this is? 
It's a fruit. That helps. It's a fruit. It doesn't really matter what type of fruit it actually is. Uh, sure, it can be a fig. It's a, it's a hypothetical fruit. It's a fruit that was drawn from the tr- tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in Genesis 3. What is it covered in, though? It's covered in blood. Fruit represents, of course, our sinful condition. And why this world is the broken, chaotic mess that it is. The fruit represents why children disrespect their parents and why parents neglect and abuse their children. It's why divorce happens. It's why people choose themselves over others. It's why sex trafficking exists in our world. It's why people enslave others. It's why people are greedy. It's why people do all of these horrible, horrible things to each other. It's because this fruit exists in our world. But hey, look, the fruit is covered in blood. And it's not just any blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And this blood, when it covers sin and sin condition and sinful nature, it does something profound. It does something incredible. And I want you to keep this incredible mystery before you this morning. I want you to keep the knowledge that we are sinful beings with this sinful condition and this sinful nature before you this morning. Own that this morning. Acknowledge that it is true this morning. Keep it before you, but keep this image of that it is soaked in blood this morning before you. Keep it before you as we we journey into Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning at verse 19, this first lettuce of this five-week series is this. "Therefore, uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, open for us through the curtains, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what does it say? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to be here, to be in your word, Father, to remember the goodness of your grace, Father, and the goodness of your mercy and how you have forgiven us, Father. We own that this morning. We embrace that this morning. Father, open our hearts to acknowledge that we are, are guilty. Father, and we need forgiveness. Father, open our minds to acknowledge that we have rebelled against you, Father, and that we need you this morning. And you have done a good thing on our behalf, God. You have shown us your greatness, Father, through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may people acknowledge that as well this morning and be washed clean and walk freely from this place this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. And all who agreed said, amen. Amen. Notice how this passage begins with this one word, therefore, right? That's one of the most important words that you can read if you're trying to interpret scripture. Therefore, it always draws your attention backwards to what has just been said. Because of everything that has just been stated, because of the argument we have just made, therefore... Everything now that I talk about is anchored to what has just been said. Really, chapter 10, in a lot of ways, uh, this portion, starting with verse 19, is the whole entire climax of the book of Hebrews. If you've ever read the whole book of Hebrews before, you'll know that this is the climactic statement that is being said in the book of Hebrews, that everything leading up in Hebrews is leading to this point. We have reached the summit of the mountain Right now, everything that has been laboriously laid out comes to fruition, and here we have the whole point of the book. These let us statements are really the climactic point of the book of Hebrews, and this is what the author wants to drive home. Because of everything I have spent 10 chapters unpacking, here is the point. 
And so let's drill it in your heads. Here is the point. And what he is so eager to explain, and the point that he is so eager to explain, is that how through Jesus Christ, Jeremiah 31 in particular, which he quoted in chapter 8, is being fulfilled. That God will forgive wickedness, and he will remember sins no more. We've reached the summit of the mountain, and here is what we find. God will forgive our sins, our wickedness, and he will remember them no more. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, uh, the fruit book, was because that I think the world has this notion that sins are just the bad things that we do. That sins are just the bad things that we do. And generally speaking, people don't see themselves as bad people because the news, the 10 o'clock news, tells us who the bad people are. They tell us who the rotten ones in society are, right? It's, it's, the, it's the home invaders and the murderers and the sex traffickers. They're the ones who are the bad people. And certainly I don't do any of those things, so I must be a pretty good person. I must be all right. The news tells us who the bad ones are. I do not act like the people that they show on the news, so maybe I'm in the clear. And the irony behind all this, which I think is also the conniving trick of the devil, is that the determination of our goodness through comparison, through judgment of other people, that is actually at the heart of the sinful condition. It's that comparison and that need to judge and to compare ourselves and to set ourselves up against other people. That is at the heart of the sinful condition. There's a psychological phenomenon known as illusory superiority. It means that there is this general belief that people think they're better than others. And so if we were to ask the common person on the street, how good are you of a person between... Uh, one and ten, one being bad and ten being good. How good of a person do you think you are? Anybody want to guess at what the average person would say? Eight. I'm an eight. Man, that's a really good person. I am three times better than the average. So all of you people, I'm way better than all you guys. And you all think the same about me, and you all think about the same about all the people around you. The news tells us who the bad people are, and we're not like the people on the news. We're the good people. We have this problem. We all think that we are significantly better than the average person. And that really is the problem. And that's the irony. Is that sin is really about judgment and self-reign, which motivates our actions. It's not about necessarily the actions we do. It's about the heart of the condition. And where those actions are drawn from and born from and where their motivation is found. And if we really look at our motivations and how often we compare... And how often we set ourselves up against other people, we're going to notice and we're going to realize very quickly that none of us are good. That we do this all the time. I'm constantly comparing. I'm constantly judging. I'm constantly setting myself up against other people. Every single day, we make 10,000 decisions. 10,000 decisions the average person makes every single day. And every moment of every day, we are making decisions that prioritize ourselves and put ourselves at the center of our world and commit to ourselves and our own betterment, even at the expense of our family and our friends and our loved ones. We are constantly setting ourselves up at the betterment and at the center of our lives. And that is really at the heart of the sinful condition. And what is ironic, perhaps, about this is that even when we set ourselves up against other people. We may not condemn their lives. 
We may not point the finger explicitly at their lives and say, look how you're badly, you're living your life, or I'm much better, or my life is so much lived greatly, or I'm a better person because you're bad. It's a lot more subtle than that. This week, a friend of mine who lives in Texas, they're building their dream house, and she threw up on Facebook, and she asked, should we put oil-rubbed bronze or satin-nickel hardware in our house? And immediately, I'm like, I bet you the homeless in your community don't care. That was my thought. I'm just being honest with you guys. That's what I thought. I bet the homeless in your community don't care. I bet the people really in need in your community don't care. And why are you spending all this additional money on oil, bronze, rubbed finishes when that money could go to a better cause? But after thinking about it, the reason I shamed them, and I did this in my head, I didn't post anything on Facebook shaming them. I said, hey, get the oil rubbed bronze, because that's the better option, right? But in my head, I'm thinking, how dare you think this? The reason I did this was because the sinful nature has created this deep-seated need in me to compare and to judge. And whenever there is an opportunity to elevate myself above another person, I'm going to take advantage of it. It's just the way we work, friends. I shame them because deep inside, I think, wouldn't it be great if I were building my dream home? I wish I were in their position. That's why I put them down. That's why I shame them. Wouldn't it be great to be in their position? But shame on them because I'm not. It's really born out of a self-pitying mentality, right? We put others down because we pity our own selves. We do this all the time. We look at pictures of our friends on Facebook who are losing so much weight and they look so good. And, and we might praise them on Facebook, but really we're like, man, I can't believe how much money they're spending on that product to do that thing. I can't believe how much time they're, they're spending at the gym and they're neglecting their family. I can't believe how much, how much time and energy they're spending and investing in this thing. And it's just so superficial, right? Our bodies are just so superficial. They're more important things. But in reality, we do this because, man, I wish I looked as good as them. I wish I was losing weight like they could. I wish I could control my hunger like they could. The sinful nature has corrupted and twisted the heart and mind of humanity, but it has done so in very subtle ways. And these subtle ways, they seem natural and they seem justifiable. Right? I didn't kill anybody. No one's ever going to put me on the 10 o'clock news because I shamed my friend in my mind. Or I was angry at my brother. Or I lusted after a woman. No one's going to put me on the 10 o'clock news for doing those things. But it's funny that Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and he says, you know what, if you are angry with your brother, if you call him stupid, do you know that you've already done the act of murdering him in your heart? You should be put on the 10 o'clock news because you just killed your brother. Do you know that if you lust after a woman or women, if you lust after a man, if there is lust in your heart, do you know that you've already committed adultery in your heart? You should be ten, put on the 10 o'clock news because you've already proved that you're an adulterer. It's about the motivation of the heart, and the heart is twisted and contorted and chaotic, and we all stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. It does not matter if you actually killed somebody physically. You have already done so in your heart. We have all these twisted minds and contorted hearts, and we stand guilty before a holy God. Do you guys get that? We're all in the same boat. Nobody is good. Nobody is righteous. Not even one. Paul wrote the Romans. 
but God. And I love, I love this phrase, but God. Can we all say but God together? But God. Right? We're all sinners, right? We're all condemned to stand uh, condemned and guilty before a holy God, but God. But God, I love that, but God looked upon our problem and he did two things. First, the first thing he did was that he put enmity or this feeling of hatred towards our sinful condition. We all hate the sinful condition inside of us. We don't like that we're screwed up. We don't like that our hearts are are contorted and twisted. We don't like that we shame our, our neighbors. We don't like that we act the way we do. God placed this feeling of guilt within us. He calls it enmity. He did this so that we might actually repel and be repulsed by the sinful condition and seek a new way out. God did this for us. It is a gift. He put this within our mind and within our heart. We call it the conscience. We call it feelings of guilt or shame when we live life wrongly. It's universal. It's not only for Christians. Every single person has this deep within their heart. But more importantly, he did something else. He promised that he, not us, that he would take care of the sinful problem. He would open up the door so that we again could reclaim the humanity he created us to live. Amen, right? That we don't have to do it, that God said he would do it for us. It's not something that we do. And so how did God do this? God established a system of sacrifice. He established a system so that a priest could mediate on behalf of a sinful person so that their sin could be paid for. That person would bring an animal before a priest and they would lay their hands on that, that animal's head and they would look that animal in the eye and they would say uh, something to the, to the effect of, I transfer the guilt that is rightfully mine and I put it upon this animal to take my place. They'd take a, a knife out of a sheath and they'd slit the animal's throat. They would collect the blood. They would sprinkle it against the altar and they would sprinkle it against uh, uh, the, the, the ground to purify the ground around the temple. And, and every time they would sprinkle that, that, uh, that blood against the altar, there'd be a, a, a whiplash and a recall effect, and they would be covered in the blood of that animal. Kind of a gross experience, don't you think? It's a purifying activity. It's a cleansing activity. And every time they, they do this, it would be like they were ransoming life. It, it was like genuine humanity, and the life we were created to live had been held captive. And... and and it demanded a ransom to be set free. And so the price of this ransom was death. It was a bold declaration that the death I deserve has been taken by this animal on my behalf. So back in my Minnesota days, I was a deer hunter, or at least I pretended to be. Emily could tell you all sorts of stories of how I only pretended to be a deer hunter. <laughs> uh, for, for another day. Um, the first buck I did get, though, uh, was when I was about 14 years old. I see this buck walking through the tall grass, and I'm sitting up there in my deer stand, and so I take my shot at it. I, I, I missed the kill zone, though, so it didn't go down right away. Instead, I broke its spine, and it's lying there in the tall grass, and it's just weeping, and it's moaning, and it's making these horrible, horrible, horrible noises, and, and I can't take it any longer. I can't just let it bleed out. I need to go, and I need to put it out of its misery, and so I get down out of my stand, and, and I'm looking through the tall grass for this deer, and, I, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and And I don't find it until I come directly upon it. So close, in fact, that I I could see its eyes. And I could see the pain in its eyes. And I could see the fear in its eyes and the expression of its face and the moaning and the groaning got even louder every step I got closer to it. I could see the pain and I could see the fear 
and it was a horrible, horrible experience because you know what? Shooting a deer from 30 yards is easy. K- killing an animal from 30 yards, it's like, it looks like the cardboard cutouts that I practice my aim on. Obviously not very well. <laughs> but get close enough to see the fear and the pain in its eyes, and shooting an animal is an incredibly hard thing to do. Taking the life from an animal when you can see the fear and the pain in its eyes is a horrible, hard thing to do. But I couldn't let it suffer, and so what I do, I take as many steps away from it as I possibly can, though I can still see it, and I shoot it from there. Because I can't bear to look at it in the eyes anymore. Sacrificing an animal was purposely a traumatic experience. It was meant to be hard to do. You had, you had to take an animal and bind its legs and, 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 and bind its, its, its mouth together. You had to put it through this pain and this torture, and then you had to slit its throat, and you had to do all of that while looking at it in the eyes and saying, you are taking my penalty for me. It's, a, it's intentionally a, a traumatic experience. It's meant to be hard to do. It's meant to draw people into the reality and the understanding of the severity and the reality of sin. They were meant to feel the pain of having to look the animal in the eye before they killed it. They were meant to get so close to the animal that to feel its fear and, and the pain as it died, they needed to feel that. That was part of the sacrificial experience. They were meant to be grossed out by it. They were meant to consider their life choices because the sacrifice that sin required is really, really hard to do. Man, sin should not be taken lightly because you are going to have to go to the temple and you're going to have to look at that lamb or that goat or that bull in the eye and you're going to have to slit its throat and watch the fear and watch the pain run out. It's meant to be hard to do and they were meant to have to do this day after day and year after year because they knew and they always knew and they always had it in the deep center of their hearts that they were guilty before a holy God. And so they needed to make amends, they needed to ransom life, and they needed to go kill another animal every single day, day after day, year after year. I am guilty. I need to go kill the animal so that my life might be preserved. See, they did this to transfer their guilt, and they're all aware of their guilt because God put it within them. They were all aware of their guilt, and yet for some reason, even when the sacrifice was made, they still knew every single time they walked away from the sacrifice, they still knew, I'm guilty. I killed the animal, but nothing's been done. What's changed? I'm still guilty. What's the point? So day after day, they'd go back, and year after year, they'd go back, and they would still feel guilty. Nothing was being accomplished. Hebrews 10 begins by saying, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. They're not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If those sacrifices could make you perfect, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are just an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? The reason you keep feeling guilty was because the old system of sacrifice didn't have any power to remove your guilt. It didn't have any power to cleanse you. All it was was a reminder every single day that you are in fact guilty. All it did was every single year provided you a reminder that you are guilty, that you have rebelled against God, and that old sacrificial system could do nothing to actually cleanse the deepest part of you. All it could do was cover up your problem. 
That's all the sacrificial system could do was cover up your problem. All it could do was apply a band-aid to your wound, but the system could never actually heal you. It didn't have the power to make you clean. It didn't have the power to bring you back to life. All it could do was cover up the problem. There was no hope. And so day after day, all you could do was cover up the problem and because of that, remain a part of the Israelite community. You could, reign, you could remain in community with people because you went and you covered up the problem. You could remain in community with God because you went and you covered up the problem, but you could never actually be washed clean of your guilt the stain upon your conscience would always remain. And so the Israelites lived with this problem. Day in and day out and year in and year out, they lived with this problem. They could not be free of their guilt. Can anybody relate to this problem? I came across a letter from a woman written back in 2007. This woman just so badly wanted to be cleansed from her mistake. She wanted to be free. And so she wrote this letter to an anonymous blogger, which says this. She says, I'm nearly 42. I'm married to a man I met when I was 15. We have two wonderful daughters, and I totally love them. Both are happy. One is going to university. One has bought a house with her boyfriend. I have a mom and a dad who adore me. We have a nice life. We go on lovely holidays, etc., etc. So why, then, on a Saturday night, am I writing an email to a total stranger? Maybe it's because I want someone to tell me that we all make mistakes. But mine has stuck with me for 15 years. On the January 28th of 1992, I had an abortion. And since that day, I have been on a mission of self-destruction. I had just gone back to work when I found out I was pregnant again, and I knew we couldn't cope. And so I went to the doctors, then the hospital, and I sorted it out. And after that, I came home, and my life utterly went downhill. I have constantly put my husband through hell with stuff I have done. And yet each time, he forgives me, and he tells me he loves me. But how can he? With what I have done, how can he love me? How can he forgive me with what I have done? And even after all this time, every September, which is when the child would have been born, I go into such a depression. I killed my child. I killed my daughter's sibling. I killed my mom and dad's grandchild. Who truly would ever forgive me? I'm not a bad person. I'm just one who made such a catastrophic mistake, which has affected every single day of my life since. And so sitting here with tears running down my face, I, I just wish someone would tell me that I'm not the horrible person I think I am. I just so wish that someone would tell me I'm not the horrible person I think I am. Right? I just wish that my constant conscience could be washed clean because I've been imprisoned through this thing I did 15 years ago and I've not been able to go free from it since. I just wish someone would tell me that I'm not the horrible person that I'm reminded of every single day of my life. See, 15 years ago, this woman put a stake in the ground. I talked about this a little bit last week for those of you who are here. 15 years ago, this woman put a stake in the ground and she tethered herself and she shackled herself to that stake and she has been not able to walk free since. 
15 years she has been tied and enslaved to this thing that she did. I would just wish there was a way forward, but how, she pleads. I just wish there was a way forward, but how? I wish there was a way to dig up that stake so I would no longer be in prison to my mistakes, but how? I have tried. I just wish someone would tell me that I'm not a horrible person. Maybe that would do it. Can someone just convince me that I'm not a horrible person? But you know what? My husband does that every single day, and it doesn't work. For some reason, I feel guilty, and I know I am guilty, and I do not know how to move forward in my life You see, we may not today use the blood of bulls and goats to try to cover up the problem. But we are still trying to solve the same problems that the Israelites were. We still have this enmity. We still have this knowledge that we are sinful human beings and we do not want to live entrapped and enslaved to the past. We still know we are guilty for the lives that we live and the things we have done, but how do we actually move forward? Maybe if... Someone would just tell me I'm okay. Maybe if just someone would just tell me I'm not the horrible, sinful human being I think I am, then maybe I could finally move forward in life. You know, I know I have a problem, so maybe I'm going to try going to church. Maybe that guy standing up on stage is going to tell me that I'm not a horrible person. Maybe that'll cure it. Or maybe I'm going to go to the church and and I'm going to get this rosary and I'm going to say 15 Hail Marys and maybe that'll do it. But for some reason, my mind remains polluted. And for some reason, my mind and my heart and my conscience are stained with this guilt because of this thing I have done. And none of these earthly external remedies seem to help. And why? Why don't they help? Well, because you cannot wash an internal problem with an external solution. Do you guys get that? There aren't enough Hail Marys that you could ever say to wash you free of the guilt because that is an external solution to an internal problem. There aren't enough church services that you could ever attend to wash yourselves free of the guilt that you experience because that is an external solution to an internal problem. Do you guys get it? The blood of goats and bulls and the activity of ritual cannot take away sin. They cannot remove guilt. The best they can do is cover up the problem. But it doesn't allow you to go free. And so God, well aware that the old system couldn't solve the problem, but simply aided in helping us realize that there really is a problem, that we really are in a wayward state, he he sent his son Christ, Jesus Christ, into the world on our behalf. Remember the second point, that God, not us, will solve the problem of sin. And when Christ arrives, he says, according to Hebrews 10, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, right? That external ritual, that was not what God desired, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Those external things and solutions, you were not pleased with them. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to be obedient. You see, God never wanted this religious system of sacrifice performed by his people. He didn't want the external religion. He didn't want a mechanism or a a checklist of boxes to be met. He wanted an obedient heart. He wanted a heart that was contrite, that was remorseful. He wanted a heart that would love him. And Jesus Christ provided this obedient, loving heart perfectly, and through his perfect, loving life and his perfect, loving death, 
He created a new agreement with God that would transcend throughout all of the human race. That somehow with what Christ accomplished through his perfect life and his perfect death, he created this new standing with God. The price of sin has been paid, and through Jesus Christ's blood, we can be forgiven, and we can move forward free from the bondage of sin. You see, day after day, every priest would stand and perform his religious duties, Hebrews continues. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, those old sacrifices, they needed to be done every single day, day in, day out, year after year, year after year, over and over again, proving that they actually hadn't dealt with any problems. Because if they had actually dealt with a problem, they would have stopped being offered. When Emily and I had just gotten married, I had this car. I called the car Blackie. She says it was purple. It was, it was a dark shade of blue, all right? But I, call, I called him Blackie. One day, I began to notice that in order for the car to start, I had to flood the engine. I had to press really hard down on the, on the gas pedal, and so I brought it to the technician, and, and they took a look at it, and they tweaked a few things, and they told me that it was all better. And so the next day, I tried to go start my car, and what happens? Well, in order to start my car, I have to flood the, flood the engine. I have to press really hard upon the gas pedal, and so I take the car back to the mechanic, and they tweak a few things, and they, they say it's all better. So the next day, I go to start my car, and, and what happens? Well, I have to flood my engine with gas again in order for it to start. And I take it back to the technician. They, couple, they fix a few things, and they say it's all better. Obviously, the problem isn't fixed, right? The, the redundancy, the repetitiveness of me having to go offering my car at the fa- sacrificial table of the mechanics <laughs> didn't do anything. It didn't solve the problem. Eventually they realized that in the motherboard there were just two wires that had been touching and that was all the problem was. And they just needed to separate the wires and the car started up fine. But it wasn't until they finally fixed the problem that I could actually begin to use my car in the way that it was designed to use, to be used. That old round of sacrifices in the Old Testament could never address the problem of sin and guilt and the stained conscience that we all have. They could never do the internal cleaning of one's mind and one's imagination, one's memories. They didn't have the power to do it. But the blood of Jesus can achieve this desire. You see, the priest stands to do his work, offering the same sacrifice over and over, which can never take away sin. But Jesus, when he offers his one sacrifice, he sits down. He sits down. His work is done. He doesn't have to offer another sacrifice anymore. It's completed. It's finished. He has done the work necessary to do what God wanted him to accomplish. You know, we live in a pretty stationary culture. I I think of my own life, for instance, and I, I sleep in bed, and then I get up and I walk to the the table where I sit down again and I eat a bowl of cereal and then I I get up again to walk to my car where I sit down to drive to work and I get to work and I sit in front of a computer for eight hours and then I get up again to get back into my car where I sit down and I drive home and I sit down at table at the dinner table and then I I sit down to watch TV at night and it's like we live in this really stationary culture. I know a lot of you work really hard and you're on your feet all day long but for me it's just not that way. And so, in the culture that 
we live in and the life that I live in, it's like, I don't sit down to rest. I need to get my wiggles out. Like, resting for me is to go play with my boys in the backyard. That's where I find refreshment. But in Jesus' day, everyone stood to work, and the priests stood to work, and they only rested to sit down. That is how they rested. But if they were standing, if they were continuing to stand, then it meant the work had to continue and nothing had truly been accomplished. And so the priests, day after day, would stand to accomplish their work. But Jesus comes along, he offers his sacrifice, and what does he do when he's done offering his sacrifice? He sits down. The work is done, the work is completed. There's no longer anything that needs to be done. He has accomplished what he set out to accomplish, and there's no more work that needs to be done. Please get that. Please understand this. Let it soak into you. There is no more work that needs to be done. It is finished. It is accomplished. What he has set out to accomplish has been taken care of. Do you guys get that? And so please find the comfort in this. Know the comfort in this. That Jesus has procured your forgiveness. He has established God's new covenant with his people. It is complete and there's nothing that we can add to it. And there's no more that needs to be done. There's no repetition that needs to be had. And to suggest that we need to add something to it suggests also that Jesus' work just wasn't enough. If in order to be forgiven, I need to go to the confessional booth, and if in order to be forgiven, I need to come to church, and if in order to be forgiven, I need to go say my Hail Marys, then, then that suggests that Jesus' work just wasn't enough. And that he's still standing, and he still needs to do something, but he is finished with his work. He is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. Amen? Amen. His work is done. He has completed the task that he has set out to complete. You see, Christianity is not this religious system that needs to be repeated over and over and over again. And, and I sinned again, and so I have to go back to the confessional booth. And I sinned again, and so I have to go say my Hail Marys. And I sinned again, so I have to go offer another sacrifice. It's not this repetitive thing. It's not this cycle that we are trapped in. Christianity is this beautiful story of, of a beginning, of how we were sinful. And, 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 and through Jesus Christ, it, it comes to the, the content of the story and eventually to a climax where Jesus is hanging on a cross to forgive our sins. And we meet him there at that climax so that we might move forward. It's about the future, my friends. It's not about the cycle. It's not about the past. It's about the future and the life that we are called to live. And being part of a Christian is to know that you belong to that story. That you are not trapped in the past anymore. That you are not shackled to chains because Jesus Christ has pulled them up. It is not about living in the past. It is about moving forward and progressing into his glorious future. Amen? God has dealt with your sins. He has achieved what he has set out to achieve, the forgiveness of sins once and for all. And if this is not good news, I don't know what it is. This is the covenant I will make with them. Hebrews continues in chapter 10. This is the new agreement that I will make with my people. That's kind of what covenant means. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. No longer will they be attached to a stone tablet. I'm going to actually embed this law upon your heart and upon your mind. Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. My friends, it is finished. It is accomplished. God has done the work. I will forgive your sins through my son, Jesus Christ. And in that process, I will cleanse your mind. And I will cleanse your heart. 
And I will do this from the inside out. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to offer uh, an opportunity to reflect on this. I will cleanse your mind. I will cleanse your heart from the inside out. Therefore, therefore, to get back to where we started, therefore, let us. Can everyone say that together? Let us. Let us, because of all that has been accomplished, because of all that Christ has done for forgiving our sins and truly washing us clean in a way that no other external thing could ever do because it is an internal problem. He has cleansed our heart by his forgiveness. We are rebels and we are guilty before who? Before God. And he has forgiven us. And he has washed us clean and he has allowed a way for our conscience to be clean so that we do not have to be enslaved to those stakes So then, let us have this mentality in mind, folks. This is where it's all about. This is where we've been leading to. Let us. This is our call. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I've talked about this the past couple of weeks. You know, God is not this monster looking to destroy us. He's not looking at all the little ways that we sin and say, oh good, you sinned again, now I'm going to throw a lightning bolt at you. That's not who God is. He's not looking for us to trip up so that he can be justified in his anger, right? He is a heavenly father who has enveloped us even in our sin by his great love so that we might be free from the stakes of sin and guilt that we have put into the ground. And the door is open and we ought to draw near to him, therefore. He's created a way to draw near to this loving Father with sincerity and honesty about who we are. We don't have to be afraid of God. We can approach Him saying, God, I am a sinner. God, I am guilty before you. I know this, God. My heart is full of anxiety and I'm frustrated and I'm confused. God, I know this. And because of the great love displayed on you, I do not need to be afraid to tell you. And so, God, I come to you with sincerity of heart With full assurance, Father, with full belief that I can lay my sins down at the foot of your cross and I can allow the blood of your forgiveness to wash over me. God is approachable. He is not a distant Father, too busy or not interested in your problems or your sin or your guilt. Lay them before him and he will embrace you with his love. And we do this knowing and believing that what has been stated is true, that Jesus Christ has secured our forgiveness. That's, an, that's not just a fancy idea. It is a fact, my friends. You are forgiven of your sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is a fact. Yes, you are guilty, but yes, you have been set free. Amen? And so with full assurance of faith, let us approach God because we know that we have experienced the cleansing of our conscience. And if you believe what Jesus Christ has accomplished, and if you know that you are a sinner guilty before God at first, primarily before God, and in his great love he has forgiven you, then you will find strength to forgive anybody their wrongs. And you no longer have to be entrapped what other people did or what you did in the past By the blood of Jesus Christ, he can pull up those stakes and you can move forward in this life. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing this song together. I encourage you to pay attention to the words if you don't know it. When you catch on, you are welcome, certainly welcome to sing along with us.